0: started, so we're going to roll here, talking about David, David's a very important figure as you have been learning over the last few weeks, and um, some things you can learn about David, you're going to learn a lot about David because it applies directly to your life, David struggled with every emotion possible, and we think that like as Christians we're, we're supposed to be stoic and we have no feelings whatsoever, right? We create a brand of Christianity that is closer to Buddhism than it is actually the Gospel. It's all about nothingness. It's all about no feeling. It's all about denial. And you see in the life of David, David experienced a lot of pain. David experienced a lot of frustration. David had certain ambitions and God would weed out of him his selfishness and just really use a circumstance to transform David. We have the book of Psalms because of what David went through. So for those of you that don't know, the book of Psalms, one of the names or the kind of the references is the book of psychotherapy. <laughs> so if you're going through something, Psalms usually has an answer for it. Or there's usually a pain that you can feel out of Psalms that you can go, wow. One of my favorites is David. Oh, this is one of my favorites. It's not one of my favorites, but always one that stands out to me. When David is talking about his enemies and he goes, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Anybody ever feel that way? (laughs) It's like, oh, Jesus, I just want you to break their teeth in their mouth. I mean, he said that. He's actually praying that, you know? So, you know, you tell me. Uh, So David's on the run. He's running from Saul. Saul's very jealous of him. Saul wants to kill him. Uh, David had an anointing. God had said, I'm going to put David on the throne. And Saul became jealous. And Saul sought to preserve himself in spite of what God was doing. Saul's typical thing, what Saul should have done, is Saul should have recognized what God was doing and partnered with it instead of resisting it. Saul kind of kept going on his own agenda. Saul was going to be on the throne for a long time. He didn't leave the throne for a long time. The only one who could legitimately remove him was the Lord, and the Lord let him stay a long time on the throne. So God didn't immediately take action against Saul. He just said, Saul, you can't continue. Your line can't continue. I'm going to do something different. And Saul could have just... Did it differently, but he didn't. He's pursuing David. He's trying to kill David. He's got an army of 3,000 soldiers searching for one man. I mean, hello. He's got the resources of the nation focused on getting, getting David. Why? I don't know. He had spies everywhere. David's on the run. David hears about a city called Kilia. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13. He's in Judah. So the, the, the nation of Israel, um, all of the tribes are there. The kingdom hasn't been divided yet. It'll be divided later. But David is in the southern part of Israel and he, where his tribe is from or where his family is from. And so he's trying to hide among friends, right? When things are going wrong, you're looking for a friend, you're looking for an ally. You're looking for someplace safety, safe and familiar. So he's in Judah hiding from Saul. And while he's in Judah, he hears about a Judean city called Kilia that's being attacked, right? And so he's trying to help them. And who's helping them and who's attacking this city is a group of people called the Philistines. So the Philistines are attacking a city in Judah. David is hiding in Judah. David has a problem with this. Saul, in the previous chapter, had just killed the priests of a city called Nob. So David went to the priests for help. He's trying to get help from the Lord. The priests help him, and Saul has all the priests that helped David killed. So it kind of shows you where Saul was at. Right? So who are these Philistines? These Philistines are attacking the city in, in David's hometown. Philistines were ancestral enemies of God's people. These people were called, they were sea people, they were related to the Phoenicians, and they were also related to the Carthinians, if you know anything about ancient history, and if you don't, that's, that's okay too, but the Carthinians and the Phoenicians in particular were very dark people, they were, they, they, and they were actually descendants of Cretans. So there was this, an island off of Crete, and there was a group of people called Minoans, and the Minoans, this is history here, the Minoans suffered a very, they were very dark, a lot of human sacrifice, it's funny, all of these people carried that forward, so the Minoans were really into human sacrifice, and the Philistines at some phase, and the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians all practiced human sacrifice, the Jews actually started practicing human sacrifice, they didn't kill adults, they killed babies, they practiced the infant side, so it's funny how, and so that Minoan culture in Crete, there was a was it either an earthquake or a volcano or something destroyed the island, and so the inhabitants of the island began to disperse through the Mediterranean, and they ended up in Carthage, they ended up in the seashores of, of um, Syria, and they also settled in uh, Israel, which is to the south of there. So they dispersed, and they all became different sort of tribes of people, but they were connected by a common ancestry. And they were connected by a common form of worship. They all worshipped a god called Baal, okay, the sky god, right? And they had a partner god called Molech and also had another god It was an unholy trinity, Astarte, right? They worshipped a god of Astarte, they worshipped Molech, and they worshipped Baal. And they all worshipped that same trinity in one form or another with different things. So they all came from the same roots, And so these Philistines are very wicked people. They're pursuing God's people. They want to take over God's people. David hears that these people are attacking Judah. And so he wants to inquire of the Lord, should I go and help? Now, mind you, at the time, David's on the run, okay? David doesn't have any friends at all. He's kind of living in the wilderness with whoever showed up, right? All the crazy guys, All the guys that were wanted and didn't have any home, they all came and said, oh, we will hang out with you, David. And David's like, okay, you guys can all hang out with me. And so David's hanging out with all of the the renegades living in the woods, and he hears about a Judean city being attacked, and he goes, I'm going to do something about that. And one of the greatest things that we can learn from that is that God always calls us out of our comfort zone. Jesus is about other people. One of the things I was meditating about this is I was asking the Lord about it, and uh, you're going to see that they end up doing Him dirty, even though He did the right thing by them, is that people always act in their own self-interest. Oh, i got some amens on that. People always act in their own self-interest. Self-preservation is the greatest human instinct. The first human instinct is to preserve yourself. That's And, and what, what's different... And what should be different about the Christian is we have the Spirit of God in us. And so while Christians are supposed to be selfless, they not always are because they're not operating by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can make you selfless. And all Christians have the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit, but not all Christians are activating the Holy Spirit. And so Christians can be the most selfish E- e- egotistical, narcissistic people you've ever met. You know, I've done business with unbelievers, and they've not been the best people in the world, and I've done business with believers, and the believers worse sometimes than the, than the unbeliever. I've, we've, I've had leases. I had commercial leases with all the, with the different things that I've done, and when we leased from a church, they were more wicked than anybody I ever met. Anybody, they were the worst, and they justified it with religion. And with God and this and that. And so they had all the religious justifications. But if I compared them to some of the most greedy landlords I ever worked with, at least I knew what I was getting over here. <laughs> These guys were coming around the backside and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with you. So the thing is, is that what you need to realize about other people and what you need to realize even about yourself is that you're selfish by nature. Self is the root of sin. Adam worshipped. Who did he worship? Himself ultimately. So you have to realize that self-nature, selfish nature, is the root of our sin. Pride covers it, because when we pretend we're not selfish, oh, I'm not selfish. I'm not selfish at all, right? That's pride masking the root of your sin, which is selfishness. The only thing and the only one who can make you selfless is the Holy Spirit. You understand that? So even as a Christian, you're going to struggle with selfishness, and the remedy to selfishness is the Spirit of God. If you And what do you do? You just get in the Spirit, and all of a sudden you feel like apologizing when you didn't want to apologize before. You know what I'm talking about? You feel like being kind when you didn't want to be kind before, because it's the Holy Spirit that empowers that. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms us out of our selfishness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is not active all the time. You have to activate that. Do you understand that? It's available to you 24-7, right? So, but there's a lot of, you know, and and again, like, that's the thing. Like, Christians, we we live in this, like, box where we think, oh, we have the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm a selfless person. When when you're so selfish, and you cannot, you can overcome that simply by engaging the Holy Spirit, getting in His presence, and coming out of that and shifting. You understand? And so David is working with these people, and they're acting on self-interest. He's trying to help them. David calls for the priest. He calls for Abathar. So the chapter before, Saul just killed all the priests, And one priest survived. His name is Abathar. God always has a remnant. I don't know, you know. You, You can try to destroy everything about Jesus, and He's always got a remnant. He's always got He's always preserved a portion for Himself. And nobody can do anything about it. You see Elijah, oh, I'm the only last prophet. I'm the only one. There's no one else besides me, Lord. It's poor me, poor me. And the Lord's go, Elijah, you think you think you're the last one? I got 350 others just like you in a cave that I have preserved. You understand? So Saul thinking he's going to kill the voice of God in the land. He's going to kill all the prophets. And God says, no, nah, not Abathar. Abathar. is going to come out. And David calls for Abathar, who had escaped from Saul. Next slide. And he, David says, tell him to bring the ephod. So we're going to talk about priesthood and ephods here just real quickly, just to give you some context, because this relates to the center of your Scripture. You have to understand how God is and how He operates. Very important. We know of the Lord, but we don't really know Him. It's important that we know him. It's important that we value and understand why he valued certain things and not just dismiss things as if it's meaningless. Priesthood in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God called his entire nation. He brings them out of Egypt and he says, Your whole nation is a priest to me. This whole group of you, all y'all, are going to be my priests. What did he mean by that? Well, here it is in Exodus. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. That's what he told Moses. Every one of you is a priest. Every one of you is a ministry. Every one of you has this. And you're going to see the parallels between what God did with Israel and what he's done with the church. You know what the Bible calls you? A royal priesthood. God has had a plan from the beginning of time. He's been trying to activate and initiate a plan from the beginning of time. And that is separating a people unto himself to become ministers to the nations. Not pastors, not, you know, somebody in a five-fold ministry, but the entire group. All of his people were called to be priests. So where did the priesthood come from? All right? So here's the deal. Sin separated mankind from God, right? So man was separated from God. But the Lord, not us, see, we weren't searching for the Lord. The Bible states very clearly in the Old and the New Testament that man was not searching for God. Why? Because we're narcissists. We fell into sin, and the only thing we were searching for was ourselves, a meaning within ourselves. But Jesus is so loving that even when we were not searching for Him, He searches for us. Amazing grace, people. Some of you, He's like, I found Jesus. No, Jesus found you. Let's just be clear. He just stepped right in your path and you ran into him. You're like, huh? <laughs> he looks for us even when we're not looking for him. And God, not wanting to be separated from man, chose these people to be a priest so that he could reach nations. That was his goal. It's called, So God took a group of people and he sanctified. Sanctify is just a fancy word to mean set apart. Right? That's a special portion. That's, no, that's your daddy's birthday cake. No, that's your daddy's piece, or that's your mommy's piece, or that's your, whatever is special, it's set aside. God set them aside to be ministers to the nations. So what does a priest look like? Here again is the identity of the church. We have to know who we are. We're sons and daughters, yes. But what also does that look like? It means that we emulate, we're called to be like Jesus, right? Oh, we're called to be like Jesus, called to be just like Jesus. Well, my question is, well, what was Jesus like? right? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he is? Do you know that? And if you don't, then you need to know because that's who you're called to be like. Well, one of the simple understandings of Jesus is he's prophet, priest, and king. So you and me, we're called, and the church is called, we're called to be like Jesus in that form. Prophetic culture, priestly culture, operating in kingdom power and kingdom dominion. That's what it means to look like Jesus, Oh no, Jesus just went around doing good and healing all those that were oppressed of the devil. Yeah. Prophetically with priestly ministry and demonstrating kingdom power. That's how you deliver from the devil. You ain't deliver nobody. You don't walk in power. You don't have a word, a prophetic discernment. When you're dealing with devils, you're not going anywhere. I got news for you. Uh, I got one. You I don't know about that. Yeah. Devil's going to come at you and you're not going to know what they are, where they're going from. All of it, you're not going to be able to discern anything. The only way you discern that is prophetically. You'll get a discernment. And then from the discernment, you relate it back to him priestly. What do I do with it? What is this, Lord? What am I dealing with? What's going on here? And you, so you get the prophetic word. You priest, you minister it with the Lord, and then the Lord shows you how to deal with it. Prophet, priest, king, right there. That's what it looks like. That's just one aspect of it. But we're called to be prophetic and, and priestly and kingly in everything. We're supposed to have dominion in our homes. Our families are supposed to succeed. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Your children are supposed to succeed. Your businesses are supposed to succeed. We are to have dominion. That's what it means to have dominion. The question is, is how do we get to dominion? Everybody talks about dominion, but nobody knows how to get there. Well, I'll tell you how to get there. Prophet, priest, and kid, then dominion. You're not getting to dominion without the prophetic. You're just not. And you're not, getting, you're not moving beyond the prophetic until you understand priestly. Some of you got over you here last week and you, or a couple weeks ago when Alejandro gives you a word. You got a word. There's a prophetic word. You didn't get it maybe for yourself, but God brought it to you. Prophetic word. People don't go beyond the prophetic word. They just sit there and rock back and forth. Yep, there's the prophetic word. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus said. Prophetic word over me. You're not going to manifest that word until you minister it priestly. You have to minister it to the Lord, from the Lord. And then unto. That's what priestly means. The first aspect of being a priest is unto the Lord. We all want to come and receive ministry from Jesus. One of the first things you need to learn how to do is minister to Him. Because worship means to, that's why we worship. Worship is to ascribe value, to ascribe worth. And really what you're doing when you value God or when you minister to Him, is not that He, Jesus isn't in need of ministry. You understand, he's not up there going, would somebody please minister to me? Please. He doesn't need to be ministered to. He's got all the ministry he needs. He's got gazillions of angels ministering to him all day long. The Trinity itself is in communion with themselves. It's a constant affirmation. Father, you're the best. No, Jesus, you're the best. Holy Spirit, you're the best. No, you're the best. It's a constant communal ministry of affirmation. That's what the Trinity is. It's a constant ministry one to the other of submission, servitude, and value. So Jesus isn't up. To, Jesus doesn't need ministry. If he needs it, he just say, "Okay, come on, bring all the angels in here. I want a new song." Boom! They strike up the band. There's a new song. If he needed it, but he doesn't. God's sufficient in Himself, but you need to minister to Him. Why? It goes back to sin. You're full of yourself, Christian. You're so full of you, you can't see past you. That's how full of you you are. Uh huh. And that's why you have to empty yourself and give up you in order to get him. Yeah, that's what worship looks like. You have to empty yourself. You have to value someone higher than you. And the only one who's worthy of the value that's higher than you is the one who died for you. It's Jesus. So that's what worship looks like. So priestly ministry begins with ministering unto the Lord. That's what it begins with. And we all come in here and go, i waiting for the Lord to minister to me. When's he going to minister to me? Well, why don't you start with ministering to him first? Why don't you start with entering his gates with thanksgiving and course? Why don't you bless his name? Why don't you begin to empty yourself? Why don't you, by faith, begin to honor him? And watch how the ministry returns to you. See, we don't understand this. We play games. I am not, I don't, every, I don't, this is never where I want to go, but every time I get up here, the Lord just takes me down this lane, right? I am not into playing Christian games. I am not into status quo. I'm not into pretending that everything in Christianity and it's all safe and it's all this. What I'm wanting is what I want more than anything in my own life and what I want more than anything in this church is reality. Reality. We want this real, don't we? We don't want to talk about this. We want to know what does this look like in the real world? We want to take the gospel and say, I know the gospel maps, but can we get the gospel to map in our own lives? I mean, we play dumb games and we act like we act like everything's okay when it's not when we're called to manifest power. And we can't. Does anybody ask a question? Why can't we manifest power? Oh, well, Jesus doesn't love me. I must not be worthy. All those are lies. All those are lies. You're partnering with a lie, so now we got to go back and unroot the lie, then we can move you over here into a place because you don't know what you're doing. Okay, that's a good place to start. I don't know what I'm doing. We don't know how ministry works because we don't understand it. Minister unto the Lord. Unto Him first. Why? I just told you. And so we are to minister to the Lord, and the Lord ministers back to you, and then you are to take what He gives you and minister it to other people. That's priestly ministry. You understand? We worship God. You're to take what you have here, what you receive today because you worship to the Lord. You receive back from God because you're receiving from Him. You, nobody does business with Him and breaks even. I can assure you of that. As you release Him, He's going to give you something and you're to take what you gain from Him and you're to bless other people with it. Bless your family. Bless your friends. Bless the lady you have lunch with. You're to carry the glory with you and just release it. You're to be a, That's ministry. Unto Him, from Him, and unto others. That's what it looks like. And that's not just the role of the priesthood. That's the role of the people. So unto the Lord. So one of the things that happens in the book of Exodus, this is a very key thing. It's a very, very key thing. God brings them out of Egypt, passes them with blood and water, just like we, we pass through with blood and water. He takes them on a journey as he takes us. It's a journey of blessing. Everything's taken care of. That's what children of Israel, everything. They had water, they had manna. Everything was just like, you know, handed to them. And then he brought them to a mountain, where he, and what did he do with the mountain? Very important. This is where you see Israel move away from their priesthood calling. Why did they move away from their priesthood calling? Because they as a nation never, ever manifested their priesthood calling. Never. They were called to be priests as a nation. You don't see it at all. They fell back and became reliant upon the caste of the priests. They came or became reliant upon the Levites. And they as a people never manifested their priesthood calling. Why? Well, it tells us if we can read it. God brings them to a mountain, and what's the first thing He exposes them to? Power. First thing He exposes these delivered people to is power. Boom! Cloud, fire, lightning, thunder. Here it comes glory and power. Right at them. And what did they do? They retreated. Oh, no. You talk to us, Moses. We're two, we don't want to engage that. And they never fulfilled their priestly ministry ever. In 1,500 years till Jesus from the time of Moses, in 1,500 years, that nation that was called, summoned, had a prophetic word over them to manifest priestly ministry. They never did it. Not once. Why? Because they they retreated from power. Oh, we don't understand it. We don't know about it. Oh, that's too weird. That makes me think this. That makes me think, oh, I don't know. They retreated from power, and you know what happened? Nullified their ministry completely. No effectiveness at all for a thousand, over a thousand years. How do you like that one? Holy Spirit comes. What? Right? What do we see in the New Testament? Jesus said you'll receive what? Power. What's the first thing he sent? Do you not see the mirror here? The very first thing he sends is power. He didn't say, and here's how we treat the Holy Spirit. We shall receive peace. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We will receive tranquility when the Holy Spirit... That's how we treat the Holy Spirit. He didn't come to bring tranquility. He's the Spirit of peace. Listen, He didn't lead with peace. He leads with power. This is how He is. And so what happens to the church? Holy Spirit comes, boom, drops power on Him. And what have we been doing for 2,000 years? Retreating from power. And our priestly ministry is nullified. Nullified. Toast at best. Substance, but no flavor. You know? Content, but no transformation. Because we deny power. It's the mark of the last day. Men will be lovers of themselves. They will profess godliness and they will deny what? Power. Not denying church. The churches aren't denying Jesus. The culture's not denying Jesus. They're denying power. You hear me say it? Devil's not anti-Jesus, he's anti-Christ. The word Christ is anointing. Anointing is where the power comes from. Everything is opposed to power because the power of God is the transformation. The anointing of God. And so if we need to understand anything, we need to understand the anointing. We don't understand the anointing. Dude, call yourself something else, but don't call yourself Christian. I tell they say this to believers all the time they talk about the anointing, I want to. Do, all everybody wants to deny the anointing. I go, you should call yourself something else. You should be a follower of Jesus, or you know, whatever. You an imitator. You should be something else, but you should not use the word Christian, because the word Christian is directly linked to the word anointing. I'm a Christian. I'm anointed of God. I carry the power. I'm clothed with His glory and His power, and so are you. And if you don't want that, that's fine. You can be nominal. You can wave as it as it passes you by, but you should probably change what you call yourself. I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, that's fine. Not me. (laughs) Give me power. Do you understand what this means? Do you understand that everything is intricately linked to power? With power comes revelation. Some of you, my wife and I were just talking in a car on the way to church, and you're believing God for provision. And God opens to you, well, I'll use the word consciousness. I don't have any problem with it because everybody's looking for an enlightened consciousness. Well, the desire for an enlightened consciousness is possible only through the Holy Spirit because it's called the mind of Christ. Christians are the most enlightened people on the planet, or should be. And we think, we think oh, because these people got over here and they used that word, they hijack the word, so we can't use it, so we dumb ourselves down. Rather than elevating ourselves into the position that we truly carry, which is the anointed of all, we carry the reality of that power. We carry the reality of the Spirit. We carry the reality of it. We retreat and play religious games. Oh, it's true. You believe God for provision. With power comes revelation. He will give you, you're asking God to make provision for you. He's going to give you a revelation to do something that will make the provision for you. That comes with power. I was just sharing with a couple of people this week. Christian, I was talking to her about some stuff. I was talking to this person about some stuff. And she's like, wow, I need to do that more in my life. She's just telling me, I just, I just feel like, just talking to you, I feel like I live on such a natural plane. Everything I do, I try to figure out myself. Power. Power. You understand? It's power. The anointing, the spirit, the power. That's what it's all about. God sets apart, they would n- forever be in need of ministry. Instead of being ministers, they found themselves forever in need of ministry. You will forever find yourself in need of ministry until you understand the anointing. When you understand the anointing, the Holy Spirit now can minister to you. You can learn how to step into ministry for yourself, receive it for yourself, and then you become all the more powerful into the lives of other people. It's true. <laughs> why Christians are in this constant need of ministry all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to sit there and make that like, like there's something bad about that. If you need ministry, go get it. You know, I'm all in. I watched the guy Alejandro give a word and and I knew who the person he was giving the word to. And it was like so clear and so right on. I got, I got up and I said, I said, I'm getting one. I'm coming forward. (laughs) I need that. Okay. That's that one was zeroed. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to step in. If you need ministry, get ministry. But what you need to do is grow. Grow into who you are so that you, in turn, cannot always be in a position of need. You can learn how to get ministry for yourself from the Spirit of God, and then you can, in turn, learn how to minister to others from that same source. He sets apart the Levites to minister to Israel as a principle of the firstborn. Israel is the firstborn of the nations. Levi was chosen. I'll talk about that next week. But it's all about the principle of firstborn. God took the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, you are the firstborn to me. You were the firstborn of salvation, the firstborn of redemption. You belong to me. God owns firstfruits. From Genesis to Revelation, Christian, the firstfruits are his. Next slide. You see that all the time. God claims the firstfruits. Abathar comes with a pit with an ephod. Right? What an ephod was was it was a two-piece vest hanging down about this big. It was joined together, two pieces of garment joined together at the shoulders by stones with golden thread. The stones were onyx stones on each of the shoulders and on each of the onyx stones was written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Symbolic that God bears the burdens of His people. Symbolic that the government is on His shoulders. That God is the governor of His people. You are not subject to human government, Christian. You are subject to heaven's government. You are not subject to demonic government, Christian. You are subject to heaven's government. Yes. I would rather have his government any day of the week. Yes. He is my ruler. He is my king. So that's why the priest wore that, was to symbolize that God bears our burdens and that, that we, we stand under and with the government of heaven. It's Isaiah. The government shall be upon his shoulders. What's he referring to? It's a priestly thing. He's referencing Christ as the priest who bears the government on his shoulders. And on top of the linen ephod, I'm telling you why David David said, bring me Abathar the priest. Now bring me Abathar with 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 the ephod. So the ephod was a vest. And over the vest came a breastplate. And on this breastplate was this thing that hung around the priest's chest. And it had 12 stones on it. Again, the 12 tribes of Israel. What's the symbolism? I bear your burdens, I bear your government, and you're close to my heart. That's what it means. You know what it means? Something a little bit bigger than that too. It means Jesus is not ashamed of his people. Because the priest, the high priest that wore this was symbolic of Christ in heaven, who is the high priest. So he was mirroring the high priesthood of heaven. Jesus wears you on his chest. He's not wearing you on the bottom of his shoe, right? He tattoos his name, your name on your hand, I get that, but he also wears you on his chest. In the most open, vulnerable, and exposed way, he's not ashamed of you. I don't know if you realize that. He's not ashamed of you. The greater question that I would have is, are you ashamed of him? Oh, now we're getting, Now you're getting a little raw here. Oh, no, Jesus isn't ashamed of me. Oh, that's great. Are you ashamed of Him? We're called to wear armor, but we wear camouflage. Most Christians are ninjas. We are serious. We hide in the ninja. We hide in the corners, you know. We ne- nobody knows you're a Christian. You've worked in that environment for 10 years. Nobody even knows you're a believer. What is wrong with that question? What is wrong with that? You know, your neighbors have known you for 10 years and they don't even know you're Christians. There's a problem here. That's a problem. When we, have an, when we have an aversion to engaging our faith, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, you I will deny before the Father. That's a cold reality. And that just doesn't play into salvation. That plays into us. We not, the Lord says, I will not be ashamed to be their God. Are you ashamed that He's your God? I'm not ashamed. Jesus, 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 be forewarned. And then the Christian, I tell the Christian the same thing. Be forewarned. I'm a spirit filled. So be forewarned. We're going to have a conversation. This is where it's going to go. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the Lord, and I'm not ashamed of the Holy Spirit. A lot of Christians, well, we're not ashamed of Jesus. But we're ashamed of the Holy Spirit. We treat him like crazy Uncle Steve. Go stand in the corner. Serious. Holy Spirit's crazy Uncle Steve. We know he's there. We all wave at him. But we, you know, it's just, it's nuts, man. So David, David, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. You shouldn't be ashamed of him. David goes and he rescues the city. Then he goes to the Lord and, and, and Saul hears that David's here. So Saul's trying to kill him. Saul comes down to kill him. And David goes, will these people, ready, that I just delivered, will they betray me? <laughs> and the Lord goes, they will. You see the self-interest of people? How quickly they turn Loyalty in this world is rare. Very, very rare. When you have loyalty, you should honor it. You should honor loyalty because it's very rare. We take loyalty for granted. Loyalty is the gold in this world. Dishonor is the normal. People betray you. People you never thought would betray you, betray you. I mean, in the worst ways. You just help them out, and then they turn around and stab you in the back. Slander you. Talk about your character. <laughs> I'm preaching myself on this. <laughs> You're like, what did I ever do besides help you? <laughs> and you, you know, people act out of self-interest. It's the, only the Holy Spirit that makes us selfless. Next slide. David didn't get mad. This is the key. David didn't get mad. He doesn't get angry. Why? Because David was not seeking the honor of people. Very important. He didn't do it for them. You understand? This is what frees us. When you do it for people, you're expecting the people to reward you. But when you do, when you do it for Jesus, you're expecting the Lord to reward you. Reward you. And I got news—he always does. So David, yes, David wasn't going to Keilah to deliver these people because they needed it. He saw it as God's honor. Same thing when he went against Goliath. He didn't do it because of the people. He didn't do it because of the honor. He said, this is God's honor this man's insulting. This is God's honor these people are insulting. These are the people of God being assaulted. I'm going to go and help them. I'm going to go and stand in a gap for them. I'm going to go and work and labor and serve on their behalf in order to benefit them. And as soon as he benefited them and they got what they wanted, they said, they betrayed him at the first opportunity. They didn't even think about it that's what's crazy they didn't even hesitate and they betrayed him David's motive was to honor the Lord honor is grateful and values everything the kingdom of heaven is a culture of honor and we have to operate according to the culture of heaven not the culture of this world and the culture of heaven is a culture of honor honor is grateful for everything grateful for everything valuing everything Honor is the highest value. When you want to place honor, the highest values to the Lord. I tell Christians this all the time. When in doubt, honor the Lord. If you're ever having a debate in some difficult situation as to what you should do, your default mode should be: when in doubt, honor the Lord. David moved on and he worshipped. And I'm going to close right here with Psalm 54. We're going to pray. We got to take communion too. But he wrote Psalm 54 out of this experience. So you can learn keys to David's life not just by the story, but through the Psalms because the Psalms kind of give you a commentary. Next slide. In Psalm 54, David says, Save me by your name, O Lord. Vindicate me by your mouth. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. That doesn't sound like grace. Oh, God, just be gracious to my enemies. He's calling them out. People without regard for you, surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice free will offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked upon your triumph. Here's the keys. This is what David dealt with. Right? First thing he does is he says, Lord, save me by your name. Salvation is in the name of the Lord. God's character and His nature is in it. If you ever wonder if God's going to help you, look at His name. Is there a promise attached to His name? He's Jehovah Desidkanu. He's your righteousness. He's Jehovah Rapha. He's your healer. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's your provider. In His name He delivers. Jesus is Jehovah saves. Save me by Your name. Vindicate me by Your right. That's actually a feminine noun, and it means give birth to power that makes things correct. That's what David's saying. Give birth, Lord. Bring forth into the world... Manifest into the world the power that is necessary to make things right. What a prayer. What? You imagine praying that? Lord, give birth into the world the power that is necessary to make things right. That's what he said. Vindicate me by your might. He names the problem. He says, This is how you're going to get over victory. You've got to pr- call into the name of the Lord, call into his promises, command something to come forth that doesn't exist. Name your problem. What was his problem? Arrogant, ruthless people who were godless and had no thought of God. So he names the problem. Then he names the solution. He says, you, Lord, are my solution. How many of us name God as our solution? We. Know what's the solution? Well, we're going to go to the Lord and we're going to get the solution because Jesus ultimately is the solution. He names the solution. He praises by faith. By faith I will praise you. He's calling out what will happen, even when it hasn't happened. He makes an offering by faith. Even though nothing has happened at this point, he makes an offering. okay, And then he makes a declaration by faith. He says, I will see your victory and I will see my enemies defeated. It's true. This again is activation. This is how we activate this stuff. We call on his name, we ask for this, we, do, we name the problem, we name the solution, we pray by faith, and we make declaration by faith. So we're going to do two things. We're going to, make, we're going to pray a prayer at the end here. So we're going to do a little model prayer. We're going to do a prayer off of uh, Psalm 54, and then um, that's going to lead us into communion. So put up the last slide. You guys want to pray? Yeah. Come on, stand on your feet. I'll help you. I'll lead you. This is modeled off of Psalm 54, so it looks very similar. Say this, Lord... Hear my prayer. Save me. Deliver me. Give me victory by your name. Your name is victory. Enemies surround me. Problems overwhelm me. Things that are too great for me. You are my help. You are my power. And you are my glory. Let those who seek to consume me come to nothing. Let the problems that overwhelm me come to nothing. Your faithfulness to me will destroy them. I praise You. I will sacrifice to You. I will honor You. You are my God, You are my King, and You are good. You deliver me from all of my troubles, and I will see the victory over my enemies." You believe that? It's true. We're going to take communion. And communion is um, one of the two interactive things that Jesus gave us. He gave us many. He gave us the Holy Spirit for even greater interaction. But two interactions that we are to, that literally manifest our faith or testify of our faith is baptism. And the second one is communion. You can bring it up. And um, communion is a representative ordinance. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he had a party, he brought his friends around, and he demonstrated something to, him, to them relating to what he was going to do. And what he wanted to do, if you really want to know the text on all of this, they were to eat the, the matzah because it represented fullness. So when they ate the... We, we, they, didn't, they didn't eat it like we, we got this little teeny tiny little cracker thing here. They ate it like full pieces and it was to represent fullness so that when they ate it, they felt fullness, that Christ brings fullness. Then they actually drank wine, not unfermented grape juice. They drank wine, right? So that when they drank wine, red wine, there's, if you've ever drank wine, and I'm not advocating that if you have a drinking issue, not to drink wine. But when you ever drink wine, there's a rush that happens at that first drink. You ever have that? When you drink wine, as soon as you drink wine, there's like a, it's almost like a blood rush. When you, when you, t- and that's what they would do. So it was that, that impartation of the blood of Christ. That was the symbolism behind it. And again, and not that this is wrong because this is symbolic, but if you can see the greater aspect of what God was trying to put into our lives, fullness and encounter through the blood of Jesus. And so that's what this was representing. So we're going to pray. And as we pray, if you'd make yourself way, re- make your way around and grab the uh, the elements. Uh, just go ahead and get it, and then we'll pray when we come back. Go ahead. Bible says and for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross despising the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high for the joy that was set before him you are his joy you are his joy Jesus is always glad to see you you're like you don't know who I am it doesn't matter he's always glad to see you and he's always in a good mood you're his joy He went to the cross, he endured the shame, the pain, the suffering, the agony, just to have you near him. If you ever think you're unworthy, that's a lie. If you ever think God doesn't love you or if his love for you is conditional, that's a lie. He loves you 100%, without condition. You belong to him and you're his joy. And he sat down. And this whole idea of the priest sitting down means the work's done. Priests were not allowed to sit down when they were ministering at all because they were to demonstrate that the work of God was never done so when it says that Jesus sat down again that's a specific language that says the work is complete there's nothing needs to be added to salvation other than confession of Christ as Lord and the surrender of heart it's yours and Jesus had a party and he broke bread with his friends and he said this is my body which is broken for you he said every time you remember that, every time you do this I want you to remember it because what I'm doing here is no small thing let's just hold it up Say this, this represents the body of Jesus, which was broken for me. I believe it, and I receive it. Let's take it together. Then he took the cup, and he blessed the cup. He said, this is the cup of the blood of the new covenant. Better blessings, better promises, deeper relationship, more access to intimacy. And he says, what I do for you is no small thing, so, every time you do it together, I want you to remember me. Let's just hold it up and say, This represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for me. It's no small thing. I believe it and I receive it. Let's take it together. Let me bless you. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Carmen's ready. <laughs> She's like, Bring it. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may he be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen.